uh, we have our Grace Family Summit next Sunday. And uh, I, always, I always hesitate when I say this. Jimmy Carter will be preaching next Sunday. <laughs> but not that Jimmy Carter, okay? Uh, pastor up in Lexington will be here. He's leading our marriage retreat on Friday and Saturday, and then we'll be preaching the, the Grace Family Summit. I hope you'll be here. Some great breakout sessions uh, during the Sunday school hour, and then uh, J- Pastor Jimmy will be bringing the message on that uh, during the morning worship service. But the Sunday after that, we'll come back to, uh, to Romans 17 and 18. And this is what Paul said, if you remember from last week, if we, children, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The apostle there anticipates and knows there will be suffering in this life for the believer. Contrary to everything the, the prosperity gospel preachers preach, that, that no, 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 if you come to Christ, all your troubles go away, all your suffering goes away, all your financial difficulties go away, everything will be perfect and rosy. In spite of that preaching on our airways today, Paul tells the truth. And that is we will suffer with him. And then verse 18 says, and this is where we'll really dwell on in two weeks, for I consider the sufferings of this present age are not worth even comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, Paul says, I want you to understand, understanding suffering in this life on this earth has got to be a matter of perspective. It's got to be a matter of outlook. It's got to be a matter of where you focus your attention and where you focus your thinking. And that's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a, is, a, uh, is a psalm that begins with great confession of faith and then immediately digresses into a, uh, uh, into a, a, a complaint, a, a lament. He, he moves from saying what is true to move to saying what it looks like is true all around him. And he focuses on every circumstance in the, in the world around him. And then he comes back to see from another perspective. And, and what I want us to see this morning as we look at this table, how this psalm focuses our attention properly and how this table will focus our attention properly if we rightly look at both of them, okay? Follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's rather lengthy, 28 verses. But I want you to hear it, and then we'll talk about it for a minute. The psalmist writes, Truly God is good to Israel. You can paraphrase that and say, Truly God is good to his people, those who belong to him, those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge 
in the Most High. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I'd said this, if, if, if I had spoken this, if I'd said this publicly, the psalmist is saying, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have spoken out of emotion. I would have spoken out of my feelings, not out of truth. Verse 16 says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you or toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put, to, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Pray with me. Father, we are entering into your sanctuary. We are entering into your presence in this whole hour. Lord, out there, things are a mess. And maybe, Lord, they're a mess out there because there's a mess inside of me. And my focus has been wrong. Our focus has been wrong. Father, we cannot control the circumstances. We cannot control the suffering that will come, be it physical pain or emotional pain and grief, be it loss of stuff, or even loss of people we hold dear. Father, we can't control that. 
But by your grace, Lord, we can control how we look at it. As the psalmist did. As Paul talks about. Help us do that this morning, Lord. Help us do that by your grace. And for your glory. And for our good. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you look at this psalm and just break it down really into four different sections, they are, they are diametrically opposite sections to some degree. It's almost like the, the psalmist is on a roller coaster of emotion. And his head is telling him one thing, his heart is telling him another thing, and his head's leading him in the right direction, and his heart's leading him in the wrong direction, as it always is. But the psalmist starts out by saying, truly, there's no doubt about this. This is absolute truth. Truly, God is good to Israel, good to his people, to those who are pure in heart, not because... We're pure in ourselves, but because we've trusted him, we're in his presence, we belong to him, and and he has cleansed our heart. Just like the songs we, we sang about this morning talked about, he has washed us, he has cleansed us by his blood and by his body, by his death and by his resurrection. Surely God is good to his people. I know that, the psalmist says. I, I have no doubt about that in my mind. I know that to be true. But... I came really close to stumbling. I came really close to just saying, I can't do this anymore. It's kind of an anticipation of what is going to finally come at the end of the psalm, but because we see here, you say, almost this happened. My my feet almost stumbled. My, My steps had nearly slipped. You know, the media's been full of the last few weeks, people visible people who have denied the faith, who have said they're no longer believers, who have turned away. And any number of reasons are built into that, but all of those reasons that they have given are all emotional reasons, folks. They're not that they look to God and they've trusted His Word and they, they, they know that He's true and they know that His Word is good, even though they can't always understand it. They just said, I can't, I don't feel this anymore. And in many cases, it's because they've decided they want to Acknowledge that something God's word says is not okay is okay. And so they go that route. And and friend, when you fall into sin, when you fall into disobedience to God, or when you want to do it, and something is attacking attaching itself to your attention above everything else, I want you to know you'll always, if you're not walking with Christ and staying in his word and staying in prayer, you'll always choose the sin. Because it's fun. D.A. Carson my favorite New Testament scholar, contemporary scholar, uh, said in a, a message several years ago, he had three questions about uh, for someone who is toying with leaving the faith. Those questions were this, well, tell me what you're reading today. And said so nine times out of ten, they're starting to read skeptical literature, not for the purpose of knowing how to do an apologetic and answer it, but they're reading skeptical literature, people like Dawkins and, and and, and Hitchens and some of those people. And, and they start reading those and, and it begins to play with their mind. 
Then his second question is this. Who are you sleeping with other than your spouse? And he says, sometimes that's not the case, but many times it is the case. And always there is some sin behind it and there's this shock that comes across that person's face. Even if they try to hide it, there's a shock there. Remember Paul Burleson telling me years ago when I was in seminary, my pastor in seminary, he said, he said if someone who has walked and, and confessed that the Scripture is the Word of God turns away and says, I'm no longer sure that is the Word of God, look for what sin they're trying to cover up, they're trying to embrace in their life. It's true. And the third question D.A. Carson asked him is, how much time are you spending in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis? And, and time and time again, it's, well, I've given that up. I'm not doing that. I'm not praying anymore. I'm not praying like I did. I'm not reading the Word like I did. All of those things lead to a downfall. Because Satan uses those as a chink in the armor, a, an opening in the armor to be able to slide his weapons in, his swords, his spears, his fiery arrows. He loves to do that. And the psalmist here says, you know, I... I know that God is good. I know that he's good to his people. I know who he is. And yet, boy, when I look around me and see what's going on, he, he describes it in, in, in pretty much detail. He, he asks the old question that people are asking still today in our culture. This is not a new question, and people act like it's new today. But is why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked increase in wealth and have no use for God? And those who seem to keep their heart pure and wash their hands in innocence, why do they suffer? Why do they have physical sickness? Why do they not get ahead in life like those who are wicked who will stab somebody in the back to do it? Why do, why do they prosper and we don't? Why is there no justice in this world? The psalmist would ask. And in verses 3 through 16... There is this pained but imperceptive struggling, or not really imperceptive, but very perceptive struggling that the psalmist is giving that he cannot figure out life. You ever been there? You ever just say, I can't figure this out. I don't understand why it's happening. Man, I go to church every Sunday. I tithe. I give, I give above a tithe. I'm, I'm generous in what I do. I, 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 I go to places and serve the poor. I, I do all sorts of things. And, and yet here I am. I'm, I'm physically sick and I'm hurting and, and I, my finances are in disarray. I don't understand it. That's what, that's what the psalmist is saying. He said, man, these, these people, there's three things basically he sees as benefits. One is, they are prosperous. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And they were growing. They were prospering. They didn't care who they ran over or who they took advantage of. They didn't care what God's word said about how they did what they did. It didn't matter. They were prospering. And I, I was envious of those arrogant people when I saw them prosper. He also said they don't suffer long and painful illnesses before they die like, like many of my friends do. He said there are no pangs until death. They eat, drink, and be merry. They party all the time. And 
Man, they just die one day. They have full strength until their dying days. And I know people will we'll hear at the conference, sing conference this, this week, Johnny Erickson Tata, who, ha, who has walked with Christ for many, many, over 50 years, but who 50 years ago had a, had a horrible diving accident, broke her neck, and has been in a wheelchair paralyzed from the shoulders down ever since that accident. That makes no sense. She has suffered and she will suffer physically until the day she dies. But not so with the wicked. They don't have trouble like others. Their pains, their pains don't come until they die. And, then, and the third thing he says, they don't have any trouble in general. They don't, they're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Maybe they can get the best medical help. I don't know. Whatever reason, they just don't go through it. And the psalmist is nearly falling for the common argument that wealth proves one's righteousness and poverty proves their evilness in their life. He says that. He says, you know, this is what happens here. They wear pride as a necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out from, through fatness. You know, we look at that today, and we, we are such a slim, concentrating culture. We say, well, what's that all about? Well, to be fat and to have your eyes bulging in, in the psalmist day was a sign of prosperity. Well, you, were, you had it because you could eat it. And anything you wanted, you could have. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily they threaten oppression. Listen, if you don't do what we want you to do, and if you don't get out of our way, we will oppress you. They've set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. In, in verse 11, he's just talking about this evil that's all around, and the attitudes of pride and violence and oppression and folly and malice. Speak toward heaven with kind of a arrogance. And in verse 11 says what they tell them. Oh, verse 10 first says, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now there's a lot of discussion among the commentators and the, the Hebrew scholars of what verse 10 means. But here's what I think it means. I think it's the best explanation that there is. It, verse 10 is best understood is that those who follow after these arrogant ones, filled with pride, filled with malice, those who follow after them say I don't see anything wrong with them we'll drink with them we'll stay with them we'll follow them and and, and we'll just drink up everything they say they've got it together it's obvious because they're wealthy and they're healthy and they've got everything they need we so so those who those those who are his people their people they turn to them all the time and they find absolute no fault in them and this is what they say Verse 10 is what they do. Verse 11 is what they say. As they're following after these false, evil people, they say, how can God know? And, and there really, is there any knowledge in the Most High? 
In other words, I can hide my sin from God. God really can't see, can he? God really isn't one who's watching over us, is he? They say, God, who are you, God, to tell me what to do? You don't know what I'm doing. They scoff and they mock at God. They scoff the most high. These are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in witches, riches and witches. All in vain. Well, here's, where he, here's where he just starts his own little personal pity party. All in vain. I have kept my heart clean. And I wash my hands in innocence. I don't, I don't do obvious open sin. I don't rebel against God. I, I know, I mean, I, I'm not perfect, I think the psalmist would say. But, but I've really tried to keep my heart and my hands clean. All day long I have been stricken. I am rebuked every morning. He says, I've not had the life of ease that the wicked has had. I'm there for sacrifices, I'm there for worship, and I'm there every time the temple door is open. But I'm stricken. I'm rebuked every morning. I'm glad he said back in verse 2, I almost stumbled, my feet almost stumbled, my, my steps had nearly slipped. Because in verse 15, there's just a spark of understanding. It comes full bore in verse 16 and 17, but in verse 16 he said, I can't say this. If I say this publicly, if I go out and, and proclaim this to the people, it's an agnostic statement, and it's going out and saying, this is how God is. God blesses those who are evil. God lets hard times come upon those who, who try to keep themselves clean. If I say this, I'm going to betray an entire generation of people. The people of God. The people who he is good to. And then verses 16 and 17, when he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, as I'm pondering all these points, I'm, I'm struggling with it in my mind. My, my thinking is not straight. I, I can't get it together. I'm trying to do it on my own strength, and it's wearisome. It's tiring. It's troubling. Until. You know how in Ephesians chapter 2, the most important word in Ephesians chapter 2 is the word but, B-U-T, just a little simple transitional type statement. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our sin, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. But God, that's important there. I think the most important word in Psalm 73 is until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. I'm not going to dwell on verses 18 through uh, following that, that talk about their end, that they're, they're in slippery places, they're destroyed in a moment. But what he said was, I see here 
that, that God is working in my life to prepare me for something that is different than here, that is greater than here, and God is protecting me as I walk through this life. Oh, I may have sickness, I may have pain, I may not prosper financially like I want to, but God is the one who gives me what I need and gives me what he desires me to have. And, and I must learn to, to recognize that this earth is not my home. I'm not a citizen here. I'm a citizen of heaven walking in an alien land. And people in alien lands are not always well received, folks. And that's what the psalmist is saying. There's coming a time they're, 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 you've set them in slippery places. There's a there's a cliff there, and there's a slant on the rock, and, and it's a little wet from the dew, and they're trying to walk on it, and their feet are going to slip. And they're going to fall. It'll be utter destruction. It'll be in a moment. It'll be utter terrors. God will not be mocked, is what he's saying. He makes a confession in verses 21 and 22 when he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, in other words, when I was thinking like I was thinking in verses 3 through 15 or 14, when I was, when I was, when I was embittered about that, it, when bitterness took over my life, I was pricked in my heart. Listen, bitterness toward another person is, is devastating, and it will take over your life. You know that's true. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, don't let a root of bitterness spring up within you. If you've got something against someone, Jesus said, go to them and make it right. If they've done something against you, go to them and make it right. If you've done something against them, go to them and make it right. Don't wait on somebody else to do it. Because if you don't, it kind of it permeates and it kind of marinates within your soul. And you become not only angry and not only hurt, you become bitter. And bitterness will destroy your life. And that's bad. But bitterness toward other people is nothing like what the psalmist was beginning to feel when he was bitter, embittered toward God. Here's a God who I know is good to his people, and I'm a part of his people, and yet I'm bitter toward you because I don't have any life of ease down here. I'm, I'm angry about that. I'm bitter about that until I came in your presence. And I saw that when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast toward you nevertheless I am continually with you you hold my right hand you, I watched coming in this morning to, to church to Sunday school and as parents came in with their children and, and they, they were holding their hands. I watched that on Sunday morning. I love to see that on Sunday morning. Because you know what? That, that, that holding that child's hand is saying, you're secure. I'm right here. I'm with you. I realize what, some of them, with some of your kids, it's you're staying right here and you're staying secure. I'm going to be with you. I understand that. But, but, but there is a sense of security Maybe it's parental security as much as children, but there's a sense of security in holding a hand. Someone who is very ill, just sit by their bedside and hold their hand. It says, I love you. It says, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. I care about you. I'm, 
I'm here. You're not alone. The psalmist says, I recognize I'm not alone. I recognize I'm continually with you. I am secure in you. Uh, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Your word is true, and it guides me. And afterward, after we're through walking through this life with you, holding my hand, guiding me with your counsel, after all that is over, when the right time comes, you will receive me to glory. You'll take me home. You'll take me where I really belong. You'll give me what I've hoped for. You'll give me what I've believed in by faith, but you'll give it to me with sight. Our sight, will, our faith will turn to sight. Our faith will turn to knowing absolutely and completely. And then he closes with those words. Who, who have I in heaven? Whom am I, have I in heaven but you? It's a rhetorical question, but it anticipates an answer. Whom have I in heaven besides you? No one. And, and, and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Lord, I want, re- I want a fellowship. I want a relationship. I want to walk with you. I want you holding my right hand. That's all I need. That's what I want on this earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may get sick. I may get discouraged. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Then he brings in that little... Theme of judgment, one more second. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Focus. You focus on stuff. In circumstances, you'll become embittered, you'll become discouraged, you'll become angry, you'll become like a beast before God, the psalmist says. The psalmist said, I came into the presence of the Lord. No greater presence of the Lord is acknowledged than at this table. This psalm is a focusing psalm. This table is a focusing table. It says to us, he held our hand. He holds our hand. He is ever with us. He is present. He he cares about us. He loves us so much that he gave his life in our place. That we might see the world enjoying all the world has to offer, but know that that's not all there is. That there's something far, far greater I don't know I just think to come to this table is to get our attention where it ought to be once again and and Jesus said do this in remembrance of me and proclaim this until I come again 
Remember what I've done and remember that I'm coming. Lord, it's good. It is, for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What does it mean to make God your refuge? It means to hide in Him. Hide in Him from all the forces that want to destroy you. Hide in Him as a, as a castle on a hill that is impenetrable by the enemy. Where you hide in Him. Where you're protected. Where He's your rock, your salvation. Evermore. 25, 26, and 28 just is a confession of faith. Is that your confession of faith? The, the shortest confession in the Bible, and one of the first New Testament confessions of faith, is Jesus is Lord because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's Lord of those who confess him and, and speak of him. And, and the psalmist even said, I'm going to take refuge in my God, but I'm also want to, so that I may tell of all your works. I may tell about your death, burial, and resurrection to those who need to hear it. That I may tell a world that is blinded to you that you are real. And, and, and I might confess you to a lost and dying culture. We come to this table to say, Lord, help us remember. Help us confess our sin. Help us confess our faith. And Lord, help us do this until you come again. Help us tell others about the work that you did through your death on that cross. Come to the table. Pastor Michael read the passage from Isaiah 53, this prophecy of his coming and prophecy of his life and his death and how he'd be treated. But the fact that he would win salvation for his people on that cross. Pray with me, would you? As the deacons prepare to come and serve this meal, would you pray that God would move in your life, that God would remind you, help you remember? And help you proclaim the truth of his death, burial, and resurrection? Would you ask him to search you and show you anything in your life that needs to be confessed of and dealt with, repented of, turned from? 
that's somehow helping you or keeping your eyes on circumstances rather than on him? Would you ask him, Lord, who do I need to tell of your works this week? Somebody at work? Family member? A friend? Who do I need to tell of your works? Lord, give me the grace to do it. If you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I invite you to join us in partaking of this meal. If you're here not a believer, I ask you just to think about what this means as the elements pass by you. Father, we ask your blessings on this meal, these elements, this bread and this fruit of the vine, this this that declares who you are, what you've done, and that you're coming again. Help us, Father, to rest in your truth. Lord, save those who don't know you this morning. Moved by your Holy Spirit in their life and call them to Christ. Convict them of sin, even as the psalmist was convicted. We thank you, O Lord. We praise you, O Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. You continue to pray as we prepare.